You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Hello, Canada, August 15th. Welcome back. I am so happy to be back in the chair. Thank you, Tamara Cherry, for filling in so wonderfully and and doing a great job, Tamara. I am back. The team is back. The crew is back. Sam is in studio with me. Sam, how's it going? I'm great. It's great to have you. Oh, my God. I love Chris is back in the chair. He had car trouble this morning. Chris said he had so much car. You know, you ever have car trouble? He's like, how's it going? Oh, yeah, car trouble. He's like, it's going to cost me 500 bucks. Everything costs 500 bucks. You couldn't even. Were you on the wrong mic, by the way? I was. I was on another mic, and I'm like, wait a second. I don't see the red light. I'm so You know, I'm supposed to be the guy who's rusty. (laughs) Sam's like, Sam's talking to the the off mic. Everything's 500 bucks. You know, you're on holiday. Something happens. 500 bucks. Go to Costco. Don't. 500 bucks. That's my 500 buck rule now. This is the crazy inflation world that we live in. Anyway, it's great to be back. We got a great show. And we've got some great people and great news. But here's the thing. So I'm back. I was off for two weeks. I have so much accrued holiday because, you know, often I work, you know, the six, seven day weeks and I get all these in lieu time because I would do question period on Sunday and power play and Anyway, so I end up collecting time. I never get to take a lot of time. So in the summers, power play goes on a summer break, and so does question period. So I get some time. So I took a couple weeks, and I was up at the cottage. that We have a family place we've had since the 70s, north of Toronto. And it's the first time we've ever – and we all go there. My brother and his family's got two kids. My sister and her family, she's got two kids, me and my family, and my parents. Now – as everyone knows, my dad passed away about nine months ago. So this was the first summer without my dad. He was there last summer. He loved that place. He worked so hard on that place. And the first night we get there on Friday, my wife, my son's away. He's in the Arctic. So my daughter just gets back from tree planting. She was north of Thunder Bay. We finally get there on Friday night for two weeks. And... My, this is the terrible news. My wife gets a call. Her aunt in Toronto is sick. We drive back literally the next morning at 8 a.m. on Saturday. And dear Annie Babs died literally in front of us. And she was a wonderful woman, very close to my wife. And, 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 and Annie Babs' son, Vince, had been by her side for years. He had been remarkable. And they have a, they're a great family. So the family gathered again for a funeral. My wife was one of the pallbearers. All women pallbearers, by the way. For Annie Babs. Had a beautiful Catholic church in downtown Toronto. And then we go back up. And we're all together up there. And and the question I have is. How much do you disconnect when you're away? For me. It's tricky. Right? Because I'm always on my phone. I I do want to follow the news. And there is a lot of news going on. And, and my question was. How much should I connect? I mean I was following along in Peterborough. A little when the so-called QAnon conspiracy following queen of Canada. I mean, look, I'm barely following along. I'm barely restraining laughter, but it's, it's serious. I mean, this is a delusional person who's involved in conspiracy theories that she calls herself the queen of Canada. She drives around in some RV. She does absolutely nothing. And she's convinced people that they should arrest the, the police in Peterborough, Ontario. So they actually, you got this guy, Frank Curtin, 
who who literally this guy who's like I'm he's he's he and a bunch of I, I'm not gonna mock them because I don't like to mock people, but they are so deluded that they're dangerous. They're they 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 have accepted such delusional crap, such absolute drivel, such phantasmagorical. It's just sad. I look at them and and it, I would be more sad if they weren't so popular. And this guy, Frank Curtin, whoever he is, is literally telling police, we're going to arrest you. And his followers are saying, we are going to, the army's going to come. And then, and I heard clips like this. We are not leaving here today. And when those officers try to leave today, we are going to arrest them. Yeah, they're going to arrest. Romana. Didulo. Now I gotta just give a shout out. There's a there's a lawyer and a political satirist named Karim Assad who who tweets a lot about this. And I, I don't know her. I follow her, Karim Assad. Uh, you've done a, a great job pointing this stuff out. She gets harassed a lot. So a lot of the clips I saw were from Karina's feed, uh, Karima's feed. So I gotta give her a shout out for that. So did I follow that? No, because they're a minor QAnon conspiracy nuts. And that's what it is. But look, the police ended up arresting these people. So they're dangerous. They're taking up our tax dollars. And sadly, they're delusional. Do I disconnect? I try to. I know the premier of Ontario swallowed a bee and everyone went crazy because, and by the way, he handled it well. Swallowing a bee is no fun. Actually, today, the premier was actually speaking about the strong mayors. He's going to make the mayors of Ottawa and Toronto stronger. I agree with him, by the way. The mayor should have more than just a vote on council and the ability to appoint. Cities are too complicated. They're too amalgamated. You need to elect a mayor with a vision. I actually believe, I know some mayors think it's not democratic. You've got to work. I don't think that's true. I think you need mayors with a stronger vision. And I actually don't th- I think this is a good idea. I don't think a mayor should just be one seat on council because you won't get enough good people to be the mayor. And then here's uh, uh, Ford um, when he was um, here. Here he is making a joke about the bee, swallowed a bee the other day. And here's what he said today when he was at the Association of Municipalities of Ontario talking, actually supposed to talk about the strong mayors. What a warm, warm welcome. And (laughs) hold on. I finally got him. There you go. And look, they're going to make sure. Did I pay attention? I think that's consequential. But the truth is, when you're away, you got to disconnect. And the truth is that the politics that I normally cover, it turns into family politics. Now, my family chooses to be together. We're not like, let's go for a weekend. We like to have two weeks as a full clan. Not only that, we like cousins to come. We get cousins to come up, like from all over the world Detroit, El Paso, Texas, California, Toronto, Ottawa. Everybody comes and people will rent cottages together. Cousins. We're a really huge fan. We had at one point 40 people at different places who had rented it for the weekend. And 40 people came and we did the family Olympics. The young kids were there. Like we did a tug of war. We did an egg toss. We did an egg run. My brother's like a big organizer of this. We did swim races where, you know, you put on old clothes and you jump and you have to put on more clothes. It was hilarious. 
and it brings the family together. So we all choose to be together. And, and I was hanging out with this other guy and he said, why do you guys do that? Like, don't you guys fight? And the answer is no. Actually, we're very lucky. And I think this is the gift my dad gave our family is that we don't fight. That there's now why? Maybe because my dad just wouldn't permit that. He loved family. My dad was like all about family, big family. He was the youngest of eight, and he loved his older sisters and brother. He was the youngest, and he loved the family being together, like a lot of family. And he, so one, it, there was like this culture of get along with your family because family first. And the second thing is, I guess we're all kind of hyper, and there's just so much activity. So it's like, Family Olympics, going for a run, work out. People are doing stuff. So, you know, we're not just sitting around arguing. But later in the program, I'm going to take your calls on this. There is a family political issue that is massive. And it's when you're sharing and you're sleeping in the same room. And we have a little cabin that my brother and, my, and his wife and my wife, we share. Our kids sleep in another place. And we share a washroom. And the politics of peeing and sharing that little washroom, which is right between our rooms, you can hear everything. The politics of peeing, when to pee, what you can do in that washroom, lifting the seat or not lifting the seat. When you're sharing a washroom at this age with your family, the politics of peeing is big. So we'll get to that later. But it is a year since the Taliban took over Afghanistan, and we're going to check in on that horrible situation next. Instant access to real people, real stories. The Evan Solomon Show is on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program, everyone, coast to coast to coast. A year ago, the Taliban seemed to shock the world and they retook Afghanistan, poured into the capital, Kabul. The world, like Canada did the same, committed, we are going to help people. We're going to bring 40,000 refugees to Canada. That was the Trudeau government promise. Have they fulfilled that promise a year later? No. Now, it's complicated, I get. We don't have an embassy there. It's difficult. It's a war zone. We've only brought in 17,300 people. That's pathetic. The Taliban have lied about everything. When the U.S. pulled out, they said, oh, we, we are not going to crack down on anyone who was in the previous government. They have. They're hunting them down. We're not going to crack down on women. They are. Afghanistan is regressing to the 90s. The Taliban are ruthless. And they're ruthless for lots of reasons. Part of the reason is they're fearing other groups who are more ruthless. There are groups there that are more ruthless than the Taliban who are, of course, Supporting Al-Qaeda. So what should be done with Afghanistan and how can Canada, which is failing, not only to bring back refugees, but many of the interpreters and their families who work for Canada. Tim Laidler is the president of the board of the Veterans Transition Network. The network has been working for the past year to help resettle Afghans and has been monitoring the situation closely. Tim, uh, thanks for your service to the country and, and, and for helping people. Um, Give us a sense, people who have been watching this for a year, what's it like in Afghanistan now for people living there under the Taliban? 
Uh, thanks, Evan, for having me on. Yeah, it, it's day by day, a lot of stress. Um, you know, a lot of stress, especially for the families who worked with the Canadian forces and Canadian NGO community in Afghanistan. Those are the families who've, who've applied that special immigration program. They've received what's called a G number. So they've actually got a number from the Canadian government telling them their application's been accepted, but is in somewhere along in the process. So those families don't know if they're going to come to Canada or not. They're waiting for their paperwork to be fully processed before they're going to make it out. And you can just imagine the, the stress they're living under, not knowing day by day hmm. when they're going to get the call or the email that they can leave Afghanistan and come to Canada. Are they being targeted while they wait? Definitely, we've seen we've seen some one-off cases. Um, it's fortunately not been systemic. We haven't seen a large push, but you can imagine if you've got a whole bunch of paperwork showing you as an Afghan wearing Canadian Forces uniform, which is what our interpreters did. Like they actually wore our uniforms in our convoys with us, and we'd use them to speak to prisoners. We'd use them to speak to people who've been detained in in the prisons back in the camps. We'd have them out in the villages talking to elders in our uniforms. If you got a photo of them in a Canadian Forces uniform, you can just imagine what that conversation would be like with some local Taliban commander in rural Afghanistan. It's not going to go well. I Many Canadians are wondering why Canada stopped accepting new applications to the special immigration process program last month. Like, I don't understand this. What happened? It's, it's hard to say. I think they tried to make it too, for too many different groups of people, and, and you can see how overwhelmed it became. You know, we, we at the Veterans Transition Network have had, you know, hundreds of veterans reach out to us who've been trying to get their interpreters who they work directly with to Canada. And that's why we've started raising money, and that's why we've been helping evacuate these Afghans for the last year. But then the program got opened, you know, to NGO staff, which makes sense, you know, to people who work within the embassy, makes a lot of sense. And then they started growing that population to ethnic minorities, religious minorities, LGBTQ Afghans. You know, this all happened in a very quick time last summer to expand this program so wide that I think it's just gotten itself clogged up without a proper way of sorting through who's actually eligible. What we're calling for, though, in the Veterans Transition Network is to say if any Afghan wore Canadian Forces uniform and worked alongside the government and has a letter of reference from a Canadian soldier, they absolutely should still be allowed to come under the SIM program. How many people do you think that encompasses? We, We know of hundreds of ourselves directly. I still have an interpreter there. Well, you do. So, so can you tell yeah. us his story? Like, so you work with someone when you t- tell us a bit about your story and, and, and the relationship you had, what you were doing to him in Afghanistan and, and the relationship you had with an interpreter who's still there. Yeah. So my job in, was in 2008 with Canadian Forces. I was part of a convoy escort platoon. So we would guard the supply convoys. They would go from the main Kandahar airfield to all the different forward operating bases throughout the Kandahar province. And that's where the risk was of suicide bombers, roadside bombs, these IEDs. And when we'd go through these villages, we would often have to stop our convoy because there was a car accident or there was some sort of block in the road. And we would have an interpreter in one of our vehicles who would get out of the vehicle with us. And if you had to go speak to some drivers to move something out of the way, or if you had to speak to the tribal elders who were in that village to ask them, you know, is there any suspicious activity going on, anything we should be aware of down the road? The interpreter would get out and speak to those Afghans for us 
and give us that critical information to let us know, hey, yeah, they're saying actually that route might be unsafe. Maybe we should go this direction instead. Or Did your interpreter in. like save your your life and your your crew your your troops? It, countless times. Countless times. Yeah, we we pulled up in a convoy once. They had three IEDs planted in front of our vehicles in a daisy chain. If our convoy had gone over those three IEDs, it would have been a mass casualty event for us. Thankfully, there were a couple Afghan army soldiers who had been talking to somebody and they had pulled off the side of the road. We stopped, our interpreter spoke to the Afghan National Army who said, yeah, we think there's IEDs there, we're calling up for a bomb squad. Our convoy stopped, we waited, we actually made another road around this entire strip of area while those bombs got defused. You know, without an interpreter in our vehicle, to talk to those Afghan army soldiers and let us know in real time there's there's significant danger in front of us. You know, myself and many of my friends could have been killed. So where's your interpreter now? Somewhere in Afghanistan. Um, you know, he's he's one of the ones who didn't get a response back. Um, so there's someone who wore our uniform, saved you and your men's and women's lives, risked his own and can't get even access to the program to come to Canada. That's outrageous. That's right. Yes. Oh, my God. And and how, do, are you in contact with this person? Oh, yeah. Almost weekly. He's texting every week. Is there an update? Is there an update? Is there anything going on with the program? And we, we keep sharing him with all the links. He's and and does the immigration minister, I know Sean Fraser just from interviewing him, the immigration minister. What is he saying? There's a, there's a man that... Help Canada. We have a program exactly for him, and he can't access it. Tim, that seems outrageous. It's it's mind blowing that we've been doing this for a year. You know, we wanted this program to be quick, efficient, and you know, I've learned a lot about Canada's immigration program, and I do understand some of the complexities. I will say there's some great people we've been working alongside now within IRCC to, to try and make this happen, but. We do need to sit down as a country and really figure out this refugee program. I think one of the things that's really sticking here is that there's a fear if you bring somebody to Canada who's not eligible because of whatever reason, they say it's very difficult to send them back home because of the refugee convention. So, well, well, it's worth it. I mean, I it's a, so. th- this is one of those cost benefit. Yeah, you may make a mistake by the same token. Someone who risked their life for Canada, we're letting go. It's outrageous. Uh, first of all, uh, let's you know it's one year since the the takeover. The battle continues to save lives. Tim Laidler has been doing that uh, for a long time, and we thank you for the service to the your your service to our country and your continued service to your brothers and sisters in Afghanistan who who work so hard for us. Thank you, Tim. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, Tim's the president of the. Of the board at the Veterans Transition Network, we we've spoken to them a lot, and they're look at listen to Tim. Just think about that, and the Canadian government, you make a promise, act on it. We're not here to hear excuses why it's complicated. There's a, an interpreter there that saved Tim's life that can't get into the bloody program. That's unacceptable. We got to take a break. An incredible story of a doctor and a community next.
where you meet the people behind the story. It's the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. Look, everybody talks about health care. It is the number one bucket where your tax dollars go provincially. It is the biggest strain on the system. But what's it really like to live in a small community where there isn't a doctor? Fogo Island in Newfoundland Labrador is one of those places. Now, we followed this story. Fogo Island, this huge, um, I think it's the largest offshore island of Newfoundland Labrador. They lost their, their last doctor, the permanent doctor. We covered it, remember, in June. And I spoke to the mayor, Andrew Shea. Back in May, and he explained the situation to us. Well, we we had a hospital, a new hospital built a few years ago, so we pretty well got a new facility. And uh, over the years, it's been declining. We've had as high as three doctors down to two, now down to one. And of course, he had he was on twenty four seven, and he's finally decided to leave this year in June. So we have uh, uh, no doctor now at all. And so he was begging for a doctor, remember? And like, please come if you're a doctor, we'll give you a great, it's a great life on Fogo. And he said, with no advanced paramedic, if if you need an ambulance and you live on Fogo, it's a three to five hour trip to Gander. Listen People to this. People will die, not might, will. Because you can't have a heart, or, a heart attack or a stroke and get to the get to the Gander, you know. Because in the middle of the night, our ferries are linked to the island, but our ferry is not crewed in the middle of the night. So if someone gets a heart attack in the middle of the night, the crew has to be called in. So finally, Dr. Anthony Fong answered the call. He's an emergency room physician from Vancouver, and he tried to go to Fogo Island as the only doctor. He did not last. Why? The job is almost impossible, and it is uh, an honor to welcome Dr. Anthony Fong here. Dr. Fong, thank you, sir. Hi. Hi, Evan. Uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. So you're an emergency room physician. You heard the call to go to Fogo. Um, why did you go and what happened when you went? Well, I've been doing um, these things called rural locums for several years now, ever since I um, got out of residency. And traditionally, what a locum family physician is supposed to do is fill in for vacation. Um, so somebody decides to take two weeks off and then you would you would come in and and cover them for that time. And usually we would do a combination of clinics and emergency medicine and some inpatient care. Um, but what I found this time was a bit different. Um, so their last family doctor had left in June and I came in uh, a couple of weeks later and really uh, all the. All the clinical duties for, for 2,200 people, a population of 2,200, really falls on your shoulders as the only doctor. And uh, so I was on call 24-7, but also had to run clinics at the same time. And this is, first of all, it's impossible, as I speak to Dr. Fong, impossible. So what was it like? Like just So you get there after the first 48 hours, are you like, oh, my God, this is impossible? Well, you know, I think it's it's possible, but what it isn't is sustainable. Um, you know, I I'm quite lucky that the uh, the contract I signed to to get there uh, was only nine days long, and so I I could see the end date, and I was like, okay, well, I could do anything for for just over a week, it's no problem. But when it becomes a long term thing, you know, like the previous doctor had been there for for several years and i heard that he had been 
um, doing this 24-7 practice for almost a year before he had left, I was like, this is not sustainable. Like, nobody can last with this type of schedule. So so you you lasted nine days, but that was your schedule. Give us a sense of what you were confronted with. Well, so my day would usually start around eight o'clock and I would, I would come in to the hospital and uh, basically it's a, it's a 17 bed, around 17 bed hospital. And it has an acute care ward, has a long-term care ward. It has an emergency room with about three beds and uh, a clinic as well within the hospital. And so I would, I would go over to the inpatient uh, ward and round on the one or two patients um, that were to see. And these are, these are acute inpatients. So, you know, think people with pneumonia or, um, you know, other, other medical conditions that, that need a couple of days to stay in hospital. Um, and then uh, I would go to the clinic and I would start seeing patients. And usually it would be, well, it would always be a fully booked clinic. Right. And um, so during that time, I would be kind of seeing patients in the clinic. And then every once in a while, like every hour or two, I'd be called to uh, see somebody in the emergency room. So I'd have to go down the hall and, you know, excuse myself from the room, walk down the hall and, and see that one or two patients. And sometimes they'd be pretty serious cases and they would, you know, tie me up for, for an hour. Um, so by the time I get back to clinic, you know, I still have to see my full roster of patients. So often they'd just be sitting there in the the room where I left them and they'd be very patient. Like people of Fogo are so patient and and wonderful. And they, they really, um, they really appreciate uh, the care that we can provide. Um, But man, it's, it's, Mm. it's difficult coming back to the clinic and being an hour behind and then still having to finish that fully booked clinic. So, so what is what happens? So you're gone now. Like, what's going to happen to the people of Fogo now? Like, how do you, how do they get health care? Yeah, so that's that's a big problem. So the last day I was there, um, I was I was told that I couldn't admit anyone to the hospital um, because basically it's it's not safe uh, to to have somebody in the hospital needing acute care, but have no doctor that can. Um, examine them and, and reassess them and, and see what they need. So uh, all patients have to be transferred out of Fogo Island now. So uh, unless there just happens to be another locum in town. So would you like, they don't have a doctor there now. Can you imagine? So, so what they got to get a doctor. They got to entice someone like you to move there from Vancouver. That's tricky with your fan, you know, with your own obligations. If they don't get a doctor, what happens to the folks in Fogo? Well, I think uh, th- there uh, there will be big problems. I think that people's um, uh, with the aging population in Fogo, and um, you know, lots of people need uh, chronic care. You know, diabetes, poorly controlled, lots of poorly controlled diabetes on, on Fogo, as as in in many rural areas. Um, and there are also people who uh, have pretty serious diagnoses, like. You know, kidney failure, I had to send off a potassium level because people with kidney failure tend to have high potassiums that cause heart problems. Right. Um, so these people with these types of problems, they really need to live near a tertiary care center. So I think some people will be faced with the really difficult decision of uh, seeking care, uh, you know, four hours away at a ferry ride 
or just moving away from the island altogether just because of the health, uh, access to health. Dr. Fung, would you ever go back? I certainly would go back. You know, I I really love Fogo Island. You know, I I live in Vancouver. I'm settled there and my whole family is here. Um, But I certainly would go back. I had nothing like really a positive experience overall with Lokoming in Newfoundland. And even though the, the, the problems there with both the system and, and the medical issues are significant, um, I think there's a lot of good to be done by, mm. um, by spending some time in this beautiful area of Canada with such a, a, a culture that's uh, just amazing and so, so welcoming. And it makes you really feel like home, even though I'm not from there. Well, Dr. Anthony Fong, emergency room physician in Vancouver, spent nine days uh, on Fogo as the only doctor. There is no doctor there now. Uh, I hope you've inspired other doctors to try to, to come out and help that community until they find someone permanent. Uh, it is an incredible place, an incredible uh, province as well. Uh, Dr. Fong, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Evan. Kind of interesting, right? Because the premier of Newfoundland is a doctor, you know, and, and his wife is a doctor. So they know these things. Um, okay, I'm going to take a break. We have something, look, I want to deal with this. This happened when I was away, but it, it, happened, it happens all the time. Journalists, especially female journalists, are under attack in a way that is so outrageous and unacceptable, and it's time to do something about it. Next. Strong views, powerful opinions. The Evan Solomon Show continues on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Welcome back to the program. Look, already today, we have covered a year since the Taliban took over from Afghanistan. A journalist's job, a journalist's job is not to be the story. No journalist wants to be the story. They want to cover people. You get into this business to cover people who are the story, the powerless, the victims of power, the victims of abuse, governments that are corrupt, calling out. The, and sometimes you're covering sports. But you're telling the story of others. But this has happened a lot in the past, but more now that journalists are being attacked. Now, we know about the movement of fake news and pushing back. Look, the media should be subjected to real, open, and fair criticism. There's no journalist and no organization that thinks otherwise. Get the facts right or be subjected to criticism and being called out. It's the beauty of social media. But that's very different than being threatened. That's very different than having death threats, than being abused being insulted, that's different than chauvinism, racism, and hatred. And that's happening. And it happens to all journalists, but it happens to women journalists more than men. It happens to women of color and visible minorities more. And it's happening in Canada. And it has come to a head in a series of vicious attacks on journalists, including... Saba 
it is as who's the co-host and producer of the Toronto Stars This Matters podcast. Saba, of course, uh, used to work at uh, CBC. She's reported for the BBC in Pakistan, Afghanistan, and the UK. Uh, she's hosted radio, television, and, and all sorts of different things. She's done remarkable work around the world under very difficult circumstances. And she's now been the subject, along with others, and we'll get to the others, including a former colleague of mine, Rachel Gilmore, and Erica Eiffel at the Hill Times. But Saba has been targeted with vicious, vicious sexist abuse, especially on Canada Day, but going forward. And she joins us now. Hi, Saba. Hi, Evan. How are you doing? First of all, good. Uh, I'll just say this in solidarity with you and what many other journalists, especially female journalists, are going through. It's, It's completely unacceptable. But give us a sense, and this is not new to you, and then you could t- tell our listeners a bit about your past with this uh, being targeted in, in vicious ways. But what has happened in Canada? I mean, I think it's quite ironic uh, because, like you said, this is not new to me. I've been uh, subject to malicious and organized hate campaigns online, surveillance and uh, harassment and and much worse at the hands of um, you know security establishments in the countries that I've reported in before, um, and I actually had to come to Canada to feel safe because that is the global myth of Canada. Yeah. This champion of human rights and a safe haven for exiles and and dissident journalists. And uh, I find it ironic that, you know, my sense of safety and refuge in this country has severely been shaken since since last year, uh, when what appears to be when I was hit with what appears to be a very systemic and organized um, hate campaign, uh, mostly centering on racialized journalists, women journalists, and it's aimed to humiliate us. It's aimed to terrify us and and silence us and move us out of these um, spaces where I think that our, our nuanced take on issues, our journalism, is essential to presenting the whole picture of Canada. This is remarkable, Sava, because... You know, this, your story when you were working as a, a journalist in Pakistan and you were reporting on a very famous story about a woman journalist who was allegedly abducted by the Pakistan army. And then you were threatened with death threats, acid attacks. The police did nothing to help you. And you came to Canada as essentially as an exile, as you say, because that shouldn't happen here. And now you're experiencing these horrible things. Can you give us a sense? And I don't want to re go into this stuff because it, there's, I don't want to glorify it, but the stuff that you're getting, I want people to understand this is not mild stuff online. Is it? I mean, if you call graphic rape threats, sexualization and, uh, death threats mild um, then probably that's what it is but I think the constant messaging I don't want to read them out here I think everybody knows on my social media and then they can see what the content content is but it centers around all of what I just mentioned I was also told that I needed to be uh, boogalooed the F out of Canada mostly the center around me just getting the hell out of the country and uh, quitting journalism and it all centers around they want to either silence us or retire us in some way. And these are just between the lines threats. Like these are people who are used to this culture of immunity, who understand how to operate between the lines. And they understand the system well enough that if we try to take this into law enforcement, we will end up being gaslighted because, the, you know, there's, there's a very different threshold um, here legally for what is considered a threat. 
But I can tell you that I have not felt safe or unthreatened ever since this has started, and it's been exhausting. It's been a year of this. It's been a year of this. And, and, and by the way, other uh, journalists, um, the Hill Times columnist and podcast host Erica Eiffel, um, who is a black woman who has been subjected to horrific uh, abuse, Rachel Gilmore, a f- uh, former colleague of mine now at Global News, um, uh, has also been subjected to it. Doesn't matter. Uh, for, it's all women, women of color. Like it's it's remarkable. What are the police doing? Like, what's the answer here? Um, and, and how has the response been? I think it's really interesting how uh, Rachel Gilmore, Erica, and I sort of unfortunately became case studies of how the system is built to, you know, further create a culture of impunity because the response has been very scattered and different. As you know, uh, women journalists across different jurisdictions have been impacted by this um, and different police departments have been handling it or rather not handling it differently as well. But it all comes down to the fact that nobody threats were taken seriously. They were told that this does not meet the legal criteria of threat. It seems that the police response has not caught up to this widespread anti-journalistic, polarized movement of hate that seems to have encompassed Canada. And as far as I am concerned, you know, I feel like the gaslighting happened in degrees based on the color of your skin or your immigration status or the accent that you have, because my report wasn't even filed, and the email was actually sent to me uh, naming uh, Rachel and Erica. I filed another report, a death threat that I received late last year. Nothing came of it as well. And I was actively uh, facing barriers from, from filing this new report. Um, you know, already the interactions of racialized people with the police are uncomfortable. Um, there, is a, there is a trust gap. I was yeah. told to that this... Um, latest incident would be added to the previous file. Then I was ghosted for almost one week while I was dealing with severe anxiety with my PTSD being re-triggered and just not feeling like I was safe at all and I needed that protection. And then at the end of the week, I was told that, you know, they didn't have any updates and that I should now go back to a non-emergency number and refile this issue. So basically to go through the whole brutal process of uh, Saba, hang in there. I got to take a break across our national network. Stay with me. I really want the questions. I want people to talk about this and what should we be doing about it? Hang in there. We'll be more. You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network and this is the Evan Solomon Show. The program, look, Every day I do this talk radio show, I, I do a power play at night at five, I do the CTV question period on Sunday, and when you cover politics, you're subjected to a lot of criticism. I don't mind it. We get a lot of it. Now, you know, I'm Jewish, so I get a certain amount of anti-Semitic stuff, for sure. It, it, it literally pales in comparison to what my colleagues, like Saba Adizaz, a co-host and producer of the Toronto Star's This Matters podcast, and a longtime journalist um, with BBC, CBC, and other places goes through and is going through, or Rachel Gilmore, or Erica Eiffel, or many, many, many others. Women go through it more. Diverse women go it through more. If you have a different immigration status, as Saba was saying, you go through it more. And and it, and it's something's going on 
that is escalating here in Canada. And it's dangerous. And the stuff is disgusting. The stuff is horrifying to read. Rape, death threats, vicious racism. And look, these journalists are open and accepting. If you don't like their stuff, say it. They'll debate you. But they don't have to deal with death threats. And the the weird thing is, the sad thing is, the police almost do nothing about, oh, this doesn't rise to the threshold. So they're unsafe at work. Now, I know the, the, the criticism of the media is part of what we talk about on this program a lot. But what has to happen to, to take this kind of danger, and that's what it is, a danger away. Now, Saba Adizaz is here, the co-host and the producer of the Toronto Stars This Matters podcast. And, and, and you've been through it when you were a reporter in Pakistan. You were subjected to horrible death threats and real ones. Um, and I say real because they, they follow through in them. And, and here, too, very real, very dangerous situations. I guess the question is, what needs to be done? Like, what would you like to see happen, Saba? So, first of all, Evan, I think we need to make a clear distinction between, you know, the regular criticism and even the trolling and the hate we get as journalists. I think we've all been in the field long enough to be very conditioned to that. We actually um, thrive on on feedback and engaging with uh, with people who follow us to understand uh, stories better, to to help disseminate that information better. What is happening right now is something I've experienced several times before, like I mentioned in other countries. This is a censorship and silencing campaign. It is organized. It is targeted. There is talk of lists and names. There is surveillance happening, which you might have seen even on real time. There are people who have even supported um, uh, journalists who have been attacked online uh, within minutes receive abusive and threatening letters of their own. So this is not just like some random people um, being unhappy with the journalism and wanting to engage or not. These are people aiming to push important, crucial voices out of the Canadian space. So first of all, Canada needs to look at a way to form an infrastructure to address its hate problem and not be into denial about this. And I think that kind of falls to, you know, it has to be a cross-organizational approach. I think the Star, um, Global News, and the Hill Times uh, which, you know, Erica, I and Rachel work for, took the lead on this uh, and taking, you know, collectively writing uh, a letter to security um, stakeholders and political stakeholders to address this problem. So I think it needs to be a cohesive approach. And one of the key points that missing in the Canadian puzzle is that I just don't understand why it's so hard, um, you know, after we have provided all the leads, all of the patterns, um, all of the clues, which shouldn't have been on us, like the burden of this work shouldn't have been on racialized journalists feeling the worst impact of this, to put this together, to give all the leads to the police, to make them understand that these are not isolated cases happening to one or two journalists. This is a targeted, organized campaign happening to to journalists who are told they're on lists And they're happening in a systematic manner. You can tell that there is a whole uh, campaign behind it. So I think that needs to be acknowledged that um, this is part of a harassment campaign and it needs to be dealt with collectively on that front. I guess the question is, how do you you react? I'm torn about this and and I'm I'm seeking your your work on this. uh, But because on one hand, um, and again, there's no when I mention what I've experienced, this is not an equivalency. I'm just giving you my own perspective as opposed to a false equivalency like, oh, I know what you're going through. I don't, but you, you know what I'm saying. When I've had death threats before, 
because I'm a political journalist. And I've had credible death threats. We've had to have security around my family when my kids were very young. It was very credible stuff. And we have security. And, you know, I had to go through security protocols and all that. And it's happened many times in my life, such as that I don't complain about it. That's life. And, you know, you have to talk to your partner about it. And, and you got to be careful of your kids. But I'm always wary about doing that, A, because I don't want to, I don't want to be the story. B, I don't want to, I'm, I'm doing my job. I don't want to have to have security. You know what I mean? I don't want to, because I want to be free to do my job in a free country to do something that I think is really important, which is hold governments to account without fear or, or threats. How do you react to this? Like, given the, the current environment, you got to be prudent, but you also don't want to give in to this kind of pressure. See, I think every day that we continue to raise our voices and we continue to do our jobs while taking on all of this extra burden, trauma, grief, I think is us actually pushing back against it. And I think that we need to look at this from a different lens now. It's no longer... Um, a situation where we're like, we don't want to be a part of the story. Unfortunately, journalism has become a part of the story. There have been, um, you know, legitimacy given to some of these narratives by the same journalistic platforms that has further exacerbated this problem. Even as we speak right now, there are certain uh, 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 far-right groups, there are certain groups that are openly talking about targeting journalists, about journalists, um, uh, journalism as a whole, being an industry that doesn't need to be there about, you know, I, I, Rachel and other journalists are being named in those um, broadcasts or, or in those posts as, as open targets, as people who don't deserve to, to have that space to be able to do their job. So I don't think it's, you know, we, we can't say we are not a part of the story. We are, because what happens when you start pushing, um, you know, journalists uh, or certain voices out of the sphere, what happens in those vacuums? I've seen what happens in those vacuums because there are people who are actively self-censoring or they'll end up being affected by this because they'll see that they're not getting that solidarity from their colleagues or from the system uh, to feel protected and, and they'll go silent. And then who will take over those spaces to inform the public, to uh, give people uh, their right uh, to and access to information? So I think we need to move beyond this, uh, you know, sort of like both sizing it or saying that we don't want to become the story because unfortunately we have. And these threats are not something, you know, a hypothetical scenario um, or we talk about, you know, or oh, this happens in, in Pakistan or in certain area, uh, countries in the global south where, uh, you know, these threats are acted upon and people get hurt. I think we have examples from across the border. We have the Capital Gazette. We've seen what happened uh, on Jan 6. Um, these are actual um, real concerns about some, I mean, I, I just want to know, like, how, what do we need to say or do uh, to make Canadians understand that this is a serious problem and for law enforcement and for other um, institutions to act, uh, to do something about it? I think everybody's just waiting for somebody to get hurt before yeah. we act with concrete action. I think somebody is going to get hurt really soon. Well, look, I, 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 we all remember 2015. I remember covering the Charlie Hebdo shooting in um in France and attacking journalists like that. Um, and it doesn't matter who the attackers are. Um, this is coming and it's coming to all sorts of journalists, including you and, and others. And um, you always have a platform here, Saba. And, and we, I think the first thing is we got to acknowledge it fairly. We got to listen to it. I think our listeners have to realize this is, you're not yelling, look, you can criticize. You can not like a report. 
That's very different than this kind of horrific, horrific threats. And we got to call it out and make sure that a democracy demands fairness and discussion, not threats. And Saba, uh, Ada Zaz, co-host and the producer of the Toronto Stars, This Matters podcast. I really appreciate your time today. Uh, take care. And, and, and you always have a, a platform here to, to raise this very crucial issue. Appreciate it. Appreciate it, Evan. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah, we got we to gotta deal with this. All right, uh, we got lots coming up on the program. Uh, I'm going to take a break. Um, we will later talk about, get this, Amazon's dead grandma. What is that? Voice cloning. Is that happening? But coming up, the holiday politics. Wait till we get into the family politics of your holiday next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, welcome back to the program. By the way, can I just say in this last um, segment that we did on journalists, Sam was here reading a lot of the text. Now, text don't necessarily reflect everyone. A lot of angry texts about journalists whining that they're getting death threats, whining that people are saying we're going to rape you and kick you out of the country because we're the victims. This is the victim show. Hey, listen to me. We're not victims here. I love it. You know me. I love to brawl. I like to mix it up. And I I welcome it. I welcome it. But I'm going to tell you this. Do you want a country... Or even if you don't like someone, you threaten to kill them. No, you don't. Do you want a country where you want to kill journalists, rape them, send them, quote, back to where they come on their Canadian? No. There's a line. It is not weak to defend decency. It is not weak to defend the freedom to safely debate. It is, if you don't like a journalist, if you don't like the media, if you don't like a story, if you think the media are liars, if you think the media are complicit with what you believe is wrong, debate it. Get on this program. Call me at 1-855-633-1010 and yell. But don't send death threats to journalists. And when, when we have a journalist who's getting them, the idea that you're going to text me at 71010 and then call her a whiner, would you like a death threat at your job when someone doesn't like what you did? I don't like you. I'm going to kill you and your family. I'm going to post pictures of you and your family. No. Decency is not weakness. Decency is strength. Defending the freedom to be safe is a sign of strength, not weakness. It is not whining. It is the power of democracy. Whining is when you think you're such a victim that you can defend death threats. Weakness is where you think you can't debate someone, so you need to kill them. That is weak. That is the sign of a weak society. That is a sign of a weak mind. It is decency takes strength. Decency and democracy require robust defense. And the, we should not tolerate people being threatened. That is not whining. That is not being a victim. That is being a citizen. 
And it's the very people who steal victimhood. We're the victims of the media. They're whining, and then they weaponize that whining through some dark, transmogrified process into legitimizing death threats. So text me all you want at 1010. Call me all you want at one 655 I don't mind if you disagree, you think the media is full of crap, and they're liars, or they're complicit, or they're government. I've heard it all, and I don't mind it. You can say it. Say it. I welcome it. We can debate it. Yes or no. Maybe you'll disagree. Maybe you'll agree. I don't mind it. But when you're texting me, and Sam, read out some of these. Sam will read this. I was going to do cottage protocols and the politics of peeing here. I may have to do that tomorrow. But, li- but when you're texting me, when a senior journalist is getting constant death threats, and instead of saying, I'm sorry she's dealing with it, I don't like what she does, I don't agree with her point, but no one should be subjected to this, you're getting messages like this. Sam. So there are a few that are, um, you guys are fake. Um, journalists can just stop lying. Um, if you, if I ran the country, you guys would be in jail. Um, boohoo could care less about all you lying scumbag journalists. And it just, it just goes on and on and on. And again, I don't mind the insult. That's great. Look, who cares? You have the right to insult. Call us a scumbag, call a journal. I don't mind. Whatever. That's, that's your, that's your jam. Go for it. And I don't care if you care. You don't have to care about everything. You may have your own world to deal with. But you shouldn't dismiss a world. The idea that we live in a society where you can jail journalists for free speech because you don't like them, that's what dictators do. That's a dictatorship. Go to live in China, see what it's like. Go live in Saudi Arabia and see what it's like. Go live in Russia and see what it's like. Go live in North Korea and see what it's like. When you, We don't like you journalists. What do you want? The politicians to have all control? you don't like the journalism, start your own. There's lots of independent media. I did it. That's how I started my career. 500 bucks, me and my partner, we started a magazine. That's how we got started. We raised money by playing music in Lee's Palace and little gigs around Toronto. Do it. Get off your ass. But don't threaten journalists because you don't like their message. Get off your ass and do something about it. Now, if you want to call me at one 855 or text me at 710, I, I, I will tell you I'm on this show every day for two hours. You see my work. It's fully transparent. You can see it on Power Play. You can see it on Question Period. Journalists are not victims. Journalists are not whiners. We'll do our jobs. We don't care. Do it. We like it. It's okay. We've been to conflict zones. The real victims are people who are getting ripped off. Real victims are people who are victims of crime. Real victims are people who are subjected to the tyranny of regimes. But any journalist, any person that is getting death threats should be called and supported because that there is no place in our society for that. And that's a sign of strength. It's not a whiner. And there are certain parts of the political spectrum that have made a religion out of victimization. They're victims of big tech. They're victims of big media. They're victims. Stop it. Contribute. It's a democracy. We have more freedom in this country than almost anywhere in the world. You have free elections. It's only the people who have given up 
That's what conspiracy theories are. They're people who think the system is so stacked against them that they can't do anything about it because it's a conspiracy. It's some kind of big tech, big media, big government, deep state, George Soros, some group. And what it is is an excuse for powerlessness so they can claim the mantle of victimhood and then whine and then justify some radical agenda. Usually they're being used by someone who wants power and wants them to give them money. But this is what was happening in Peterborough, the so-called Queen of Canada, who's self-declared in this idiotic, non-legal, nonsensical sense that she's going to have her few followers arrest the men and women of the Peterborough police force, and they tried to do it. Men and women who are out there with risking their lives every day to keep citizens safe, and they're going to be arrested by a bunch of people who don't have any understanding of the law because they're victims. You're not a victim. You don't like the system? Change it. You're free to do so. Call into a radio show. Start your own media company. Start your own political party. Vote. This is Canada. You can do it. Conspiracy theories are excuses to give some phantasmagorical rationalization for the fact that you won't get off your ass and change the system. So you're making an excuse that it's too much. There's nothing you can do. You're just a victim. And now you can justify any kind of action against this so-called pretend tyranny. There, is, there are real problems in Canada. We need to call out government. We need to call out government overreach. We need to debate them when they infringe in our civil liberties. And that happened a lot. We should call it out. And we have organizations like the Civil Liberties Society that do that. But we'll do it here. But succumbing to conspiracy theories that allows you to justify hatred and tyranny and anti-Semitism and chauvinism and all sorts of other kind of racism is unacceptable. And it ain't. You could text me at 71010 and call, oh, it's weakness. Oh, you're, you're pretending you're the victim. We're not the victim. It's a sign of strength to stand up to a democracy that needs a robust debate. Now, I wanted to talk about the, the politics of peeing at the cottage, but I'm going to have to do it tomorrow because I'm pissed off now. Because I don't like when we have a, a, a senior journalist who's saying, hey, I'm getting death threats. And a bunch of people feel the need to, to get off their butt and text good. Like, what's going on, Canada? Let's disagree civilly. I love that. No one wants you to agree. I don't care if you agree with me or not. I want you to disagree civilly. Now, what we're going to do is drop all this and we're going to talk about artificial intelligence and Amazon's dead grandmother and voice cloning. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. But are they authentic voices? Well, that's what we say in the ad, as you heard. Authentic voices. But if you're listening to Amazon, maybe it's a voice clone. What the hell is voice cloning? And is this the new frontier of AI, artificial intelligence? Literally the old speaking with the dead. To talk about this, and maybe this is the next frontier, 
the host of the great podcast, my constant companion as I run the roads about the nation's capital, the super data science podcast king on the phone with John Crone. Hello, my friend. Hey there, Evan. I like that little rhyme there. <laughs> I was in your great city, New York, for about uh, eight days over the holidays with my wife. Great place. Great place. I didn't oh, run yeah? into you. I was uh, listening to Super uh, Data Science Podcast, though. What is this? People are like, wait a second. What is the voice cloning and, and Amazon's Alexa and the, the famed dead grandma? Oh, yeah. This is really cool. I think that some people found the dead grandma thing a little bit creepy. Um, so the backstory here is that at a big... Uh, conference, the head of Alexa, so Amazon's uh, voice assistant uh, head, wanted to have this really impressive demo, so had uh, apparently the voice of someone's grandma. So they have this adorable short video where a boy asks his Alexa device, can grandma finish reading me The Wizard of Oz? And then you hear what sounds like uh, a grandmotherly voice. You don't know actually if it sounds exactly like this particular boy's grandmother's voice, but definitely sounds like a grandmothery voice. And it starts reading The Wizard of Oz. And so this gives us a, um, a view into a technology that, that we might be able to use as consumers ourselves in just a few years. Apparently, they were able to imitate this grandmother's voice from just a one-minute audio clip. So you can imagine if you have a camcorder recording or some audio recording from some relative of yours that died decades ago, you could theoretically in a couple of years yourself as a consumer use that recording and a tool like Amazon, the other big tech companies like Google and Microsoft would have comparable kinds of technologies. There might be other startups that come up that can do this. You would be able to use that little clip and then have, um, you know, have your, uh, your home devices like Alexa read in the voice of that dead relative. So, so... So, you know, my dad passed away nine months ago. Um, you could, you know, if I wanted to hear his voice as my Alexa voice, they could do that or my grandmother or something. That's yeah, like, that's really remarkable. I, can, can you, I don't want to get too techy here as speaking to John Crone, the, the host of the, of the Super Data Science podcast, but like, how do they do it? Give us a sense so people have a little bit of an understanding of it. Yeah. So you might remember that um, until very recently, until just the last few years, when you have these voices that could generate speech, when you, uh, so, you know, Windows computers since the 90s have had this capability that you could highlight text and then have it read something to you, but it sounded robotic, right? So it would sound like bitter, happier, more productive, like it had, right. uh, I don't know if people remember that kind of voice. And so even Alexa... Actually, you sound that, like that voice. That sounds like a previous <laughs> gig of yours. <laughs> that was very good. Uh, well, I took that exactly, well, <laughs> for the Radiohead fans out there, I took that from a Radiohead track where they had uh, that exact same algorithm do it, so it was an easy pick for me. Um, but, uh, so, up until very recently, so even Alexa is only a few years old. Um, the, the first Alexa device came out in 2014, if I remember correctly, so eight years ago. And that Alexa device, and up until very recently, all of these devices, all that they had were recordings of the parts of speech, of the common parts of speech. So the machines would just kind of stitch together individual sounds that had been pre-recorded. And so that's why it didn't sound very natural because when I'm speaking to you, like I am right now and to your listeners, I am changing the tone 
you know, the same word at different parts in the sentence, I would say in a different way. And so the old systems weren't able to capture that. In the last couple of years, thanks to um, a transformative artificial intelligence technology called deep learning or deep neural networks, we now have these new systems that are called neural text-to-speech systems, so neural TTS. And these neural systems are, are creating the sounds from the ground up. So instead of relying on recordings, these machine systems are able to predict what the right sound would be and create that, that sound from scratch. And so that's, yeah, so that's how it works. So that's how the new systems are able to be much better than what we had just Yeah, the neural text-to-speech, the TTS. People will hear about this. It sounds like this is going to be a massive industry. Where will we see this industry going? Oh, yeah, this is going to be huge. So uh, right now, it's about a billion or $2 billion annual industry uh, worldwide, which in the grand scheme of tech isn't so big. But in about five years, it'll be about 10 times larger than that. It'll be roughly about a $10 billion industry because it means that um, – you know, things like customer service helplines is a great opportunity for this kind of automation. So the kinds of easy questions, common questions that you give to customer service helplines, uh, instead of having it read back to you robotically, you could have an interactive conversation. So there's a great demo that came out in 2018 from Google. They released this technology called Duplex. And Duplex uh, through it, it could we could see that in the future in Google Assistant, it carries out a remarkably um, human-like conversation. Some people found it even disturbing how human-like it was. So in order to have really human-like sounding conversation, it has to have ums and ahs and these other kinds of things that we use to buy us time to think <laughs> as we're speaking in real time. So these kinds of algorithms, like the Google Duplex algorithm, take into account that we need to have those. And same kind of thing. It's relying on this deep learning technology, this neural um, text-to-speech technology, in order to have analyzed lots and lots of human conversations. And so that instead of giving you the perfect output, it's giving you a more human-like output. So we're going to see this in more and more applications. Um, that Google application in 2018 uh, it was able to, it was specific to restaurant conversation. So you could phone up, um, you know, your favorite Chinese delivery place in your neighborhood. And instead of having a human answer the phone, you could have a conversation about what you'd like to order. Right. Um, so it was very narrow. It was restricted to just restaurants. But we'll see it being applied more and more and more across uh, broader industries in years to come. In, in the last minute we've got, uh, John, it, it also, look, let's go from opportunities to threats or perils which is, you know, we talk a lot about deep fakes video. Um, what stops a deep fake voice? Uh, oh, well, I just heard a recording yeah. of John Crone saying X. And you're like, I never said that. That's a terrible, it was a fake. Yep. So, I mean, that is like possible today. So you could actually, through Google or through Microsoft, if you have software developer skills, um, you can use... Um, what we call APIs, application programmer interfaces, to interact with algorithms that Google and Microsoft have. And you can choose from hundreds of voices with either of them. So with, with Google, there's hundreds of voices that you could choose from. With Microsoft, there's hundreds of voices that you could choose from. So if you are um, a software developer today building some kind of application, or to your point exactly, if you are trying to trick somebody, uh, you could absolutely, you could very easily today 
at extremely small cost. You know, it would be pennies to use these tools from Google and Microsoft for your, for your application. Um, and so, yeah, so, so, you know, your listeners need to be aware of that today. They could be duped by somebody faking a voice uh, and potentially in the not too distant future, maybe in six months or a year, they could be, uh, they could be using your voice or they could be using the voice of one of your loved ones or someone you trust. Wow. Uh, and so that is a frightening prospect. Yeah, yeah for, sure. for scammers. Imagine, oh, it's your mother talking. It's fake. I need some money. It's your mom. It's fake. Like, yeah. here we go. Uh, John Crone, host of the Super Data Science Podcast, the, the incredible opportunities and the incredible real um, potholes that exist here. John, yeah. that is fascinating. Uh, the grandma moment and Alexa and Amazon, another watershed moment. John, thank you, sir. Great to connect. I really appreciate your time. My pleasure, Evan. It's great to be on the show. Uh, guys, check out Super Data Science Podcast with John Crone. All right, coming up, a 16-year-old baseball phenom in Canada makes history, and she joins us next. Authentic voices, real conversations. This is the Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, she made history. You probably saw her if you're a Blue Jays fan. You saw Jada Lee throw out the first pitch. She only got to throw out that pitch. That was cool, but it was more cool that she became the first woman ever to pitch in men's baseball. At the Canada Summer Games. And she pitched a hell of an inning plus. Jada Lee, the 16-year-old from Newfoundland and Labrador, joins us now. She is, of course, the barrier breaker herself. Hi, Jada. Hello. You throw some smoke. Tell For those people that don't understand how historic it was, tell us what you did when you pitched in a man's uh, baseball game at the Canada Summer Games. There's no female team there. So, so to, what happened there? Uh, sorry, what? So, so just tell us, like, you know, how did you get the opportunity to pitch at the Canada Summer Games? Uh, well, my coaches at first, when I tried out, they had to send in a request to the Canada Games Committee itself to see if I was even allowed to play. And when they uh, approved the request, then, um, well, he had a chat with my parents and stuff about how accommodations would be different and stuff. And um, they just made a change for me. So no, no woman has ever pitched at the at the men's baseball at the Canada Summer Games. Is that right? Yeah. So how did the guys take to you? Uh, well, my team, I've played with them for like a good few years now, so they're all like used to having me there. The other teams, um, it was a like you'd hear some words at the start, but I honestly didn't get much of a reaction or anything. So you're on the mound. Were you nervous when you took to the mound? Uh, walking out there, I definitely had some nerves, but once I was on the mound, it was just like any other game. So, so when you threw that first pitch, you're you're, you're throwing there. Um, did you did you have your pitch? Like, did you study the lineup? Did you know what you were going to throw? Was it your best pitch right away, or did you just you know you're following what the catcher thinks is works for this hitter? Yeah, I was just listening to my catcher. Is that right? And and how did you do? Talk, Walk us through your inning, because I know Newfoundland and Labrador lost to Alberta that game, but your inning, what you pitched, what, about an inning and a half? Yeah, it was an inning and a third. 
inning a third. And how'd you do? Uh, the first inning was pretty good. It was three up, three down. It was um, three hits, just like right at the players or whatever. But the next inning was uh, not so great. And and tell me something, Jada. Um, like, after you finished, what was the reaction uh, of the rest of the guys? On my team, they all just, like, congr- congratulated me and said good job or whatever. The other team, I, I didn't talk to them. Now, this makes history. Apparently, the Canadian Baseball Hall of Fame took the baseball. Is that right? Yeah. That's pretty cool. So so, so then you get invited to the Jays opening. What was that like, to, to fire the pitch at the Jays op- uh, at the, the opening pitch? I was really excited, especially, like, that many people there, like, cheering. It was um, definitely a moment to remember. Speaking of Jada Lee, the 16-year-old who made history when you became the first female to pitch in men's baseball at the Canada Summer Games. Take me back. Like, you're from Newfoundland, Labrador. How did you get into baseball, Jada? Uh, My two older brothers played. um, So when I grew up, my dad coached them, and I kind of grew up around the field, and then I made a bunch of friends there, so I just kept at it. And did you know right away, like, you were particularly good at this sport? (laughs) No. Oh, really? Why? Tell me about that. Uh, well, I kind of just, like, I knew I could compete with them. So, like, on the team, I when I was younger, I never, like, stood out or anything. I kind of rode the bench. But um, I just stayed persistent with it. Hard work. Are you, now, now, what has been your motivation? Like, I guess you're trying to keep up with your older siblings. Is that right? Uh, well, neither of them actually play anymore, but they used to. They were good. So, so what's the future? Like, tell me about, like, what would you like to do in a baseball career? I'd love to play college baseball on Team Canada. On Team Canada. But what, do you go to the States for that? Or would you ever go to the States for a baseball scholarship? Or is there good baseball here in Canada? Uh, the States has better baseball, I think. I I'm, I'm honestly don't know much about college baseball, but um, I would consider going to the U.S., yeah. Tell me about... Um, like, this is kind of interesting, right? Because we've never had a, a, a woman pitch in the major leagues. Do you think that will happen one day? Uh, hopefully. But you see that happening. Do you think you can pitch as well as any guy? Um, I think possibly, yeah. How fast can you drill a fastball? Because I saw your opening pitch. You, you, you fired a rocket there. <laughs> I average around seventy six to seventy nine, but I top eighty. You top eighty. Do you and now? But you're not finished. Like your strength is just beginning. You're sixteen years old. How, what? Do, what? What would you like to be able to fire a pitch at? I mean, eighty five. Eighty five. Eighty five miles an hour. And what? How many pitches do you have in your arsenal? Do you got a breaker? Do you got a slider? What do you have? Uh, right now, I throw a fastball, changeup, and curveball. But I'd like to throw a slider. Okay, tell me what, okay, so, so you're throwing a fastball, people understand. What is a changeup? Like, how do you throw that? Uh, well, there's different, like, ways to hold the ball depending on the type of changeup, but you throw it just like a fastball, and the way the seams, like, catch, it slows it down and drops it. Oh, is that it? So it's just the position on the ball, so you're still drilling the ball the same way? Yeah, you throw it the exact same way. It's just the way you're holding it, it slows it down. And, puts and, it and what about a curveball? Same thing? Curveball, you like you throw it as hard as you can, but you like snap your wrist a different way at the end. And can you throw? Do you have a good curve? Depends on the day. 
What's the one where the bottom drops out of it? You know, it looks like a fastball that just hits the dirt. Um, is that a changeup? Is that like, like it's amazing because major league pitchers have like two or three pitches. That's it. Like that's what they, they make a, they can make millions of dollars and they've got three pitches that they work with. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. It kind of sucks though, that the men get paid so much more than the women. Yeah. Would you like to see that change a bit, Jada? Uh, yeah, for sure. Like in tennis. Well, um, so when do you play next? Are you going to play any more with the men's baseball team at the Canada Summer Games? Uh, well, we're done playing now. We're back home. But uh, I have you 16 nationals, women's nationals, in a bit over a week. Well, good luck with that, Jada. Good luck. And thanks for joining us. You made history. Pretty cool to make history and have your baseball in the Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Jada Lee, 16-year-old who made history when she became the first female to pitch in the men's baseball at the Canada Summer Games. Congrats, Jada. Thanks for joining us. Like, here's the thing. You get a young woman, Sam, like she's 16 years old. You are an athlete. We always call your your nickname Bam Bam Sam because you were a ringette player. Right. And I remember my my wife was a, a, a good ringette player and a good soccer player. When she grew up, there wasn't a lot of female leagues potential. Like you, then, of course, you could play in university, you could play in college, and then professional. But it really, the only way, unless you're a, a female tennis player or a female golfer, boy, there's not a real financial future to go professional, is there? No, there isn't, for sure. And I mean, at least with my experience with ringette, um, one of the big reasons why uh, you know, my dad put me in ringette was because of this female community. Like it was a, it's a female sport and Amazing. I mean, so, but it, it would be nice to see. Well, more. my daughter too played very high level ringette, but then it's like, you know, there's university level, there's national team, yeah. but there's no professional leagues. And, yeah. and you got to someone like Jada Lee, 16. Don't you wish there was like a professional league? Like we'll see you on the circuit. You just don't know when you'll see her again. All right. It was great to be back. We'll see you tomorrow. 24, 22 hours from now.